Subscribe to The Spectator this summer and get the next 10 weeks of the magazine as well as unlimited access to our website and app for just £10. Not only that, we'll send you a bottle of Pims absolutely free, only while stocks last. So go to www.spectator.co.uk forward slash Pims to claim this offer now. Hello and welcome to Chinese Whispers with me, Cindy Yu. Every episode I'll be talking to journalists, experts and long-time China watchers about the latest in Chinese politics, society and more. There'll be a smattering of history to catch you up on the background knowledge and some context as well. How did the Chinese see these issues? For China, World War II started in 1937 with the Japanese invasion, two years before Hitler invaded Poland. Japan would occupy China until its surrender in 1945, in the process committing atrocities like the rape of Nanjing. This was the second Japanese invasion of China in 50 years. Yet decades after the war, when I grew up in Nanjing, Japanese food was all the craze and it was Japanese anime that kids watched and Japanese fashion that teenagers craved. So has China got over its wartime hatred of Japan? I'm joined today by the Tokyo-based Chinese translator Dylan Levi-King, who you might remember from our previous conversation on ketamine use in China. And if you haven't listened to that, do go check it out. We're going to be chatting about China's attitude to Japan today and the contradictions within that. We're not going to be focusing so much on the history between the two countries that I've just done a whistle-stop tour of. If you want to learn more about that part of things, there's nowhere better to go than Professor Rana Mitter's book, China's War with Japan. Dylan, welcome to the podcast. To start with, can you talk a little bit about the bog-standard attitude to Japan in China, the ones that perhaps older generations have? Well, older generations would have had a memory of the Japanese invasion. Still in China today, there are elderly people who remember having to bow to Japanese soldiers and who were very likely in areas that were subject to the invasion, who, who would have seen the atrocities firsthand. They know what happened when Japan invaded in Manchuria in 1931 and then the war uh, escalating in the late 1930s. They know very well what Japan did and what the result of that was. Yeah, I mean, my grandma, for example, I've never heard her refer to the Japanese as anything other than Japanese devils, There's always, if she's talking about the Japanese at all, she has to tack on that guizi, that devil suffix. And as someone who was born and raised in Nanjing, where obviously the Nanjing massacre happened, we had annual air sirens commemorating the day of that invasion and horrors of the months that followed. So as a child, it was seared into my mind, this Japanese invasion and the cruelty of it. And I found it quite terrifying, actually, when young. But I guess across the country, your collective memory of that depends on where you are in China as well, because some areas like Nanjing would have been more severely affected. Yeah, and even even if you even if you were a little bit like let's say you were born in the after the 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 war, you would have still grown up in a time where there were movies being made about every war movie was about fighting the Japanese mostly, unless it was about the Civil War. Um, you would have read books about brave soldiers resisting the Japanese, and it would have been just sort of in the air around you. I love the portrayal of the Japanese in these war TV shows and films. They're all, always so, you know, so cold and barbaric. <laughs> always speaking Japanese in a really, you know, brusque way. <laughs> yeah, you know, there's uh, it. It really changes over time. By the time you get to like the the 1980s, when the people making the movies 
had really had probably no memory of the Japanese. They become sort of cartoonish and and just over the top evil and and wild. Whereas in the the fifties and the forties, they're they're evil, but they're still kind of cool in a scary. way. They're yeah, they're yeah. scary. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, but having said all of that, there is a contradiction because in my upbringing in Nanjing, I still grew up watching only Japanese cartoons. And, you know, whether it's Pokemon or Digimon or any of the other ones that people in the West haven't heard of, Japan was a soft power of choice for, for, for a lot of Chinese younger people, whether it's in fashion and, and shows. Have you come across your Chinese friends being subject to that soft, soft power influence? Yeah, definitely. I mean, that that. Through the 1960s, Japan and, and China were, were still trading a little bit after the Sino-Soviet war, the Sino-Soviet split, sorry. And through the 1970s, they were investing money and there was a little bit of culture flowing in. And they were right there when, when China was opening up in 1970, after 1976, 1978. So yeah, even if people are vocally hostile to Japan, even if they're virulent nationalists and... Um, they hate the Japanese and they would still be watching Japanese cartoons and listening to Japanese music and consuming Japanese pop culture. It would, it would be something that they would be able to separate out to some extent. I used to go to this clothing store when I, when I was a student in China in the mid-2000s. And in the store they would sell, at that time, Japanese fashion was big, like vape and visu, all those 90s, early 2000s Japanese brands. But on the, on the doorstep, walking into the place, there was a, a Japanese flag on the ground. So you could trample on the Japanese flag as you walked in to buy all your Japanese fashion. You know, and, you know, the polls show that, like, very few people have a favorable view of Japan. Like it's, it went down to close to single digits in the, in the 2000s, but there was never, um, never anybody saying, let's not watch Digimon. Nobody ever really, nobody ever said, we need to ban uh, Chibi Maruko-chan. Nobody ever put those two things together. It's sort of healthy. It's sort of like, I think, Kids in like the Middle East who would probably hate America are still listening to uh, like Two Chains or whatever. Oh, that's a really good example, actually. And you mentioned the polls. I was doing some digging ahead of this podcast, and in 2016, Pew Research showed that seven in ten Chinese people associated violence with the Japanese, and 15% believe the Japanese are honest. <laughs> so, I mean, this is like xenophobic stuff. Yeah, right? but I mean, like in all through this period, I think a, a big part of it. You talk about old people and young people. I think the, the the thoughts of old people or their views of Japan, they have a living memory or their parents lived through it. Whereas young people, I think a lot of it comes from the patriotic education that, that came after 1989. Up to the 1990s, relations were pretty good. You know, there was a lot of money flowing in. A lot of people don't acknowledge it now, but Japanese investment really allowed China to become what it was. But after 1989, even then, Japan was still sort of friendly with China, even when everybody else was sanctioning the heck out of it. They sent the first state visit to China after. But at that point in the 1990s, when the Japanese economy starts to implode and they sort of take a rightward turn in politics, Japan becomes sort of a target for nationalist rhetoric at that time. And it, it sort of bleeds into the patriotic education that that all these kids were receiving after 1989, after Tiananmen. So their hatred of Japan, their hostility towards it is, 
sort of juvenile and uh, you know it's it's righteous and and correct to some extent that japanese did perpetrate horrible crimes but it is sort of disconnected from the reality of of what happened sort of based on a on a caricature of of japan as a way to prop up nationalism can you talk a little bit about that patriotic education campaign? Because I think for outsiders, you might think that, you know, propaganda has always been a part of the curriculum in a communist country. What is it about the patriotic education that started in the 90s that makes it a different thing? Well, I mean, before 1989, 1989 is remembered as this big singular event that that changed China. But throughout the 1980s, there was a lot of intellectuals and, and writers discussing what direction China should take. And a lot of them were, uh, we could call them liberals. They wanted to open up more to the world. They wanted to open up to America. They wanted democracy. And there, it didn't just, it wasn't just 1989, there was something happening in Tiananmen. There was a whole run up to that. So the patriotic ad- education after 1989 was an attempt to instill in young people a philosophy that they could believe in, giving them something that would drown out all of that talk from intellectuals and and reformers within the party. It was something for everyone to rally behind. And in 1994, the central government tells local governments to start remembering the anti-Japanese war with museums and monuments. And that's part of patriotic education. People would would go out, you'd, you'd have kids go out every year for school to to whatever local anti-Japanese struggle monument was there. Whereas in the, the, the late 1970s, 1980s, there was sort of a push to separate out that history from current Japan. You see the films of, there's a film in 1978 called Sakura. There's a film in 1980 called Jade Butterfly. Those are films are about Chinese-Japanese mixed families who were divided by the war and about their reunion and about how as people they can kind of separate themselves out from that history and after 1989 with that patriotic education that idea sort of goes out the window you know there's still trade with japan and relations are kind of good but it's japan sort of becomes a tool for providing something to rally around in that patriotic education. Maybe we can split it in terms of like the political and the personal almost that you know you might politically be learning more about Japanese atrocities or having exaggerated curriculums but culturally speaking for your personal life you're still (laughs) consuming all of the stuff that we've talked about and tourism as well is a big thing isn't it because Japan is so close that financially speaking it makes most sense to go to Japan, Taiwan, Hong Kong, those places for tourism for a lot of Chinese tourists. When I was in Kyoto for example the most commonly non-Japanese language that I heard was Mandarin actually on the streets which was you know so interesting and all, all these Chinese girls dressing up in the kimonos because they thought it was a fun thing to do. Yeah I mean there's um, you, you just saw there was a, a tourist attraction in Dalian that was just closed down this week it was a little Kyoto in, in Dalian it was I don't know if it'll be closed down permanently, but they sort of recreated a Kyoto street in Dalian and it's got shut down. Why did it get shut down? Well, it's unclear. It's unclear, but it's it's been forced to discontinue operations. It's like part of a, a Japanese company is building a housing complex there. And that was sort of like their first sort of showcase of what it was going to, to be, but closed down. But yeah, Japan, when their economy got worse, they needed to 
get Chinese investment and Chinese people to come here. It was a good way to support the economy. So they made it easier in the in the 2000s to come to Japan. It's really easy and it's cheap. You can fly here for like that's one reason why I live in Japan because it's so cheap to fly back and forth. You can get a flight for like a couple hundred bucks. And there's so many Chinese coming here, you know. It it shows some sort of schizophrenic nationalism in Japan too where their economy is so built off of that Chinese tourism investment, but they still say horrible things about the Chinese people who are coming. Yeah, I think that's a big part of it. When you when you go to China now, you when I when I mentioned that I've just come in from Tokyo, that somebody will say, oh, yes, I, I studied in Kyoto for a year, or I just came back from touring Hokkaido, or I went down to the beach in Okinawa. It's completely different from before, where most people would never have the chance to come to Japan. But that doesn't that that hasn't really improved the views of of Japan at all. You know, the the favorability numbers on polls have still kept falling despite people coming here. It's very strange in a way. Maybe, as you say, it is a mature splitting of the culture and the government or the politics or the history or something, but I'm not sure. <laughs> um, Dylan, I, I've read your piece as well about, you know, walking through Tokyo looking for Chinese bookshops. And, you know, there are there vast neighborhoods in Tokyo that are just completely, I, would, I don't want to say Chinese dominated as if it's a bad thing, but, you know, very much for the Chinese diaspora. Hmm, it's it's not like you'd, you'd see in in the United States or Canada now where there's like, you go to Richmond in Vancouver and it's you see, you see all signage in, in Chinese and it's mostly Chinese people living there. There are areas like Ikebukuro, which is sort of a new Chinatown here. That's that's where sort of all the students and people working here live. The area with all the Chinese bookstores is called Kanda or Jinbocho. That was back in the day, that's where you know people like Zhou Enlai and Lu Xun were we're hanging out in cafes, drinking coffee. There's still a number of Chinese bookstores and Chinese restaurants around there. But, you know, coming from the West, where there's those sort of immigrant diaspora neighborhoods, doesn't really happen in Japan. There's not really, it wouldn't really be tolerated, mm. I guess. Well, can you talk a little bit about that back in the day that you mentioned, Zhou Enlai, the former pre- premier of China? Did he study in Japan as a Chinese student? Yeah, he came quite late. Basically, after the Sino, the first Sino-Japanese war over Korea, over whether or not Korea would be allowed to be independent or a Chinese tributary, the Qing had to pay a indemnity to Japan. And sort of like the boxer indemnity ended up sending students to America. A lot of students were sent by the Qing rulers to Japan. It was like, package deal with their all the silver they had to send with their indemnity so all the big events in the 19 early 1900s took place in japan all the big events in chinese politics because everyone was there sun yat-sen was there chen kai-shek was there wang jingwei was there who went on to become the the puppet ruler of china everyone was there and they when they went there they had sort of were exposed to new ideas and they were had the freedom to organize. So like the Tongmenghui uh, was organized there by Sun Yat-sen in 1905, then Chiang Kai-shek went there in 1906 and, and joined up. Yeah, because Japan at that point had gone through the Meiji Restoration. So it was this modern imperialist state, whereas China was still kind of languishing, I guess, in, in the last days of its imperial rule. 
Yeah, and even even then, you know, you had to take a boat. Not there, there was no jet uh, liners flying back and forth, but it was it was much easier and cheaper to go to Japan than it was to go out to France or or London or or the United States. A lot of great writers who really defined Chinese literature, modern Chinese literature, ended up going there. Uh, Lu Xun was there. That's where a, a big turning point in Chinese culture happens when he's sitting in a medical school classroom in Sendai, and he sees a slide come on the screen, a, a lantern slide, like a glass plate in front of a lantern. He sees a scene from the the, the Russo-Japanese War that's taking place at the time. He sees a Chinese man who's been accused of working with the Russians. A Japanese soldier is about to execute him, and in the background are a whole bunch of stout, young Chinese men who outnumber the Japanese and who are perfectly capable of overpowering him or fighting back, but they're just there to take in the spectacle. And that that lantern slide moment in Sendai changes things. He goes back, he leaves um, his study. He was sent there by the Qing. He leaves his studies there and, and basically goes back to China, charged up to lead a sort of cultural reformation, a cultural resistance to the to the old way of doing things. Through his literature? That's right. Yeah. And can we talk a little bit about jumping back in time again? You mentioned the 90s and the patriotic education, but in the noughties, there was also this incredible liberalism in China, culturally speaking. And um, when we were talking about this before, you mentioned the porn star Sora Aoi. Am I saying her name right? Tan Jingkong. Yeah, that's good Good enough, Sora Aoi. Yeah. Uh, can you tell us about her, that phenomenon? Why, why do you think she's important in this conversation? She, through the, especially in that period, like in 2012, there were big anti-Japanese demonstrations over the... Diaoyu Islands or the Senkaku Islands. In 2005, there had been demonstrations against Japan also when they were offered a permanent Security Council seat. So this is a time when open hostility towards Japan and a sort of tougher nationalism is popular. But at the same time, for some reason, the Japanese porn star Aoi Sora is incredibly popular in China. This is a time when people are getting online for the first time. And after they share their nationalist ranting about about the <laughs> Japanese ghouls and their horrible crimes, they tab over to whatever LimeWire or whatever they were using at the time to download and they and they start getting clips of Aoi Sora, who's not a very popular Japanese porn star. She was somewhat popular. But she became incredibly popular in in China. You know, when they said many people who, after Twitter was blocked, many of the people who bothered jumping over the firewall wanted to follow her on Twitter, wanted to keep up with her updates. She became incredibly popular. She learned Chinese as well, and she she came over as sort of a unofficial cultural ambassador. When, when everyone was rioting in 2012, she was one of the few people who was calling for calm. It's it's sort of a ridiculous situation that <laughs> the only person these rioters will listen to is a, a Japanese porn star. I don't know if they listen to her, but there's a famous placard carried in the demonstrations that say, Jia Yu Dao shi Zhongguo da, Aoi Sora shi, shi jie da. 
Aoisora, uh, Jiao Yudao belongs to China, but Aoisora belongs to the world. And it's just, she's just like a symbol of that sort of strange split that you could love Japanese culture and Japanese, a Japanese person, but also go out and smash up a Toyota because you were upset about the Senkaku Islands or Diaoyu Islands being sold by, being bought by Ishihara, the Tokyo governor. That's so funny. Well, is there some kind of, not to make this a podcast about pornography, but is there some kind of taboo associated with Japan, Japanese porn? Because am I right in thinking that porn is not a la- not legal in China? So, so, so Chinese porn doesn't really exist. The interesting thing is that basically American pornography is not widely consumed, I would say. Even back in the 2000s, when I accidentally purchased the pornographic DVD on this. This is true. It was it was completely accidental. Okay. It was it was it was Japanese pornography, and even now, it's it's something that's quite openly discussed. Like even anybody who watches pornography and would mention it would mention Japanese porn sites. American pornography is something that they don't really enjoy. I guess it fits a more Chinese sensibility what the the aesthetics of Japanese pornography. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's about beauty standards because I've heard Chinese people describing Americans as too big or too tall or too wide or whatever it is and preferring much more East Asian petite beauty standards. Anyway, moving on, there are also those who are less mainstream, the Jingzhi, the spiritually Japanese. What are those up to? Who are they? Well, they're, they're quite a strange group. I've written quite a bit about reactionary politics online, uh, far-right politics. And a big component of that group is now what's called the spiritually Japanese. So these are people who are interested in contemporary Japanese culture. They watch anime. All their memes come from anime programs that are on TV right now. But they're also interested in 20th century fascist imperial Japan. So they go out and get dressed up in Imperial Japanese army costumes. When, when they made the, the law against insulting heroes and martyrs recently, it included a clause saying you can't glorify uh, war or acts of invasion. And that was sort of partially, I imagine, to stop all these people from cosplaying as Imperial Japanese army officers, which was it, quite common. You know, you would you would see every so often there'd be a scandal where somebody wore a Japanese army uh, officer's outfit to the, to the Great Wall or some other, or like the East Lake and some other tourist site. And there was also a, a, a girl arrested in Anhui in 2019. She had gone to school in Japan and she was putting these drawings online of... Chinese people as pigs, basically, like Chinese officials and police officers as pigs. She was arrested for that, and she was spiritually Japanese. You know, in the in the nationalism of the 90s, there was sort of a certain amount of self-loathing. Like, um, people would say, we, we need to hate Japan, but we also need to hate ourselves for letting that happen. We need to make sure we never fall to the same low level. It's sort of taking that self-loathing to an extreme point where you're glorifying the people who who are more powerful than you glorifying that fascist power and it's 
it's also sort of a reaction against the 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 communist party the regime of today because that's like the most offensive thing you can do it'd be like walking through times square with an isis flag you know, yeah. same level of yeah. even if you don't really care about isis it would be just a wearing great... nazi uniforms yeah exactly um yeah in a way it's sort of like british punks wearing nazi uniforms back in the day like it's the baddest coolest thing you could do or you're uh prince harry wearing a nazi uniform that's sort of a different story um uh, yeah so it's sort of a it's it's an extreme gesture against the the current regime and speaking of wearing things, I remember when I was in China, there was a massive backlash against the actress Zhao Wei, who was, who's in trouble these days anyway. But back then in the noughties, she wore a dress made out of the Japanese flag. And I don't know, were you in China for this? And then there was a huge backlash. Survivors of the Nanjing Massacre wrote her public letter. She publicly apologised on national TV three times, I think it was, because of you know daring to wear this this flag, this flag dress. Yeah, I, I actually didn't remember that yeah. until it came up recently when she got in trouble and and I saw a picture of a, of uh, of her in that I think it was that even a rising sun flag, not just a Japanese flag. And is that the military I, one, the rising flag quite, one? Quite, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was it's quite quite shocking. Um, you definitely couldn't get away with that. Now it's surprising that she got away with just you know those not being apologies. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And I guess part of this problem with Japan is I wonder what you think about this and how much of it is down to this historical baggage that a lot of Chinese think that Japan should be inferior to China. You know, throughout history, Japan paid tribute to China. It was Japan that was influenced by Chinese culture, not the other way around. You know, architecture, food, religion, all heavily influenced. And even it scrapped kanji, which is using Chinese characters. So, you know, it's, it's feeling like, you know, you're feeling imbalanced. Like, how dare this little Japan, Xiaozhiben, how dare they come and invade us and do all this stuff to us? Yeah, I mean, I think that's part of it. I think that's that's a, an issue with with Japanese nationalists too, who are trying to, because Japan had quite a short run as an imperialist power up until you know the eighteen nineties or whenever, they were still a peripheral power. They weren't much better off than Korea, which was officially a, Jap- a Chinese tributary state. They had a short run, and the nationalists in Japan have to deal with. So much of their culture is was transmitted from China, from religion to literature, to law, to the way cities are laid out. You know, Kyoto is based on Xi'an, but in China, yeah, I, I think that's that's an ele- an element to some degree in that Japan will always be Xiaoruban. It'll never be. It's never be. It's it's a it's an American running dog. That's that's all it is. It's now it's it had a brief brief run where they tried their best to become an imperialist power, but they're just a little island. They used to be part of China's sphere. Now they're part of the American Empire's sphere, and they're really upset about that. And you know the the Chinese and the Japanese both have to their nationalisms have to deal with that mm. with that problem. Can we talk a little bit more about China's economic growth and growing superpowerdom um, and what that means for Japan's feelings about China? Because they must be feeling a little bit, well, more than a little bit peeved for the nationalists. The, the problem is, you know, through the 90s, you see all this nationalism centered on Japan about how, like an economic nationalism, we need to become wealthy and powerful so that Japan could never do anything again. So we can beat the Japanese. 
they did. Japan's economy collapsed. Well, it didn't collapse, but it imploded in 1990, just as China started its growth. You know, China's growth really takes off in 1992, just as the Japanese economy is imploding, just as Japan is entering, you know, many mm-hmm. decades, many lost decades. So Japan has become less important to China in significant ways. It's still a massive economy. It's still very wealthy. It's still right on its doorstep. But the fact is that China is stronger and it's going to become the world's largest economy very soon. And Japan, a lot of the politics of Japan are a sort of pro-China faction versus an anti-China faction. So uh, right now there's an election taking place coming up. And in within the, the Liberal Democratic Party, it's sort of down to Konotaro, who's a considered one of the pro-China factions and people in Abe's, Shinzo Abe's faction who are really, their, their, their idea of how to go about the future is to just keep upsetting China and hopefully America will bail us out somehow. So Konotaro, he's, he's um, being attacked by the nationalists now for saying that basically mm. America will not be around mm. forever as the only superpower. We need to acknowledge and make peace with China as a superpower. We need to take ourselves out of the direct influence of America. We need to be able to connect back with China on our own terms to be able to grow our economy. Japan will never be able to grow wealthy again without connecting out to China in a serious way. When you say the pro-China factor, I mean, how pro are we talking? Because how pro can you get away with in Japan? Right. They're not pro-China. They're not. They're not. They're just their their position is like Konotaro is the only top guy in the Liberal Democratic Party who's not part of the Nippon Kaigi, which is a, a, a really wild right wing fascist group. I mean, they're they're quite silly. They don't really do anything but visit Yasukuni Shrine every now and then and say, mm. you know, we need to remilitarize. But Konotaro is is quite mild in his pro-China stance. His father was famous for admitting that comfort women existed, which is not it was not a mainline right. position in the Liberal Democratic Party. Now you have one of the top people is Taro Aso, whose family was was running a mine with with Korean slaves, and he won't admit it happened. He won't admit comfort women existed. So Konotaro is simply saying. Yes, comfort women probably existed. We're not saying we should apologize for it or do anything about it or compensate anyone. Just admitting <laughs> it existed is a bold stance. His, he also says we should, apart from just bringing in more Chinese tourists, we should give them, we need to get workers to, to Japan. And East Asia is a great source of workers. They're right. culturally similar to us. They yes. They will be able to fit in well here and they they would like to come here. So we need to bring in Chinese workers to, to, to work here more permanently than they are now. So again, obviously he's not pro-China, but he's relative to the people who, who are anti-China. Uh, he's actually somewhat. Pro. Right. I, I see. I'm glad that I asked that question, the triangulation, because I mean, 
Well, you mentioned a few things there. You mentioned comfort women who, you know, listeners might know are Korean women who were essentially enslaved as, as, as prostitutes for the Japanese military. And as something, as you say, is still quite controversial in Japanese politics. A lot of politicians, especially on the right, Shinzo Abe, the former prime minister, and now his successor, that side of things, they don't admit, right? They don't admit that really happened. They yeah, uh, they yes, they, they would they say there were contracts right, right. signed. We signed contract with them. They wanted to be prostitutes. They <laughs> wanted to be trafficked to a distant land. It's completely and have, have these Japanese soldiers' children and all this sort of stuff. Um, and there's so obviously yes, it's completely a massive wrong. problem for Japan Korea relates to South Korea relations as well because they won't admit this. And then Yasukuni Shrine, which is a symbol of I don't know, what would you say, Dylan? <laughs> I mean, it, it, it literally houses the war criminals who. Um, the post-war tribunal. Yeah, but it didn't always. It didn't always house war criminals. Before, like, 1978, I think, it was just, like, a, a place where all the war dead were remembered. So, like, when you were fighting and when you were Japanese soldiers would say, we'll meet again at Yasukuni after death. And then there was a decision made to enshrine war criminals there. The emperor of Japan stopped visiting when that happened. But people in the Liberal Democratic Party, the Dalai Lama, Rabia Kadir of the the Uyghur Congress, they still like to visit there just to upset China. Right. Yeah, well, that's kind of what I want to ask you about, because... I mean, I don't know if you think this is a lazy comparison, but in Europe, we think that Germany has acknowledged its World War II legacy a lot. And then it's, you know, it's incredibly ashamed of it. It's a very apologetic, all that sort of stuff. But in Japan, it feels like it's a completely different story where, you know, you com- it's complete historical revisionism to not even acknowledge comfort women or, or maybe even the Nanjing massacre. And so... I think it's quite shocking that a modern liberal democracy who is in the G7 still doesn't recognize something that they did 70 years ago. Yes, I mean, it was a completely different situation in Japan. Japan was needed as a bulwark against communism in a way that Germany wasn't really. So basically, they brought back the war criminals to run the country because the war criminals were very good at suppressing the communists. So the CIA would send them golden guns and say... Don't let the communists take power because you've got the Soviet Union right there. China's right there. We need this as a, in the words of Nakasone, who's a former prime minister, we need an, we need an unsinkable aircraft carrier sitting right here on the Russian Far East and the, on the Chinese coast. So it was, it's by design that Japan became what it did politically because the, the nationalists were empowered by the American occupation. And the Liberal Democratic Party has stayed in power with brief absences since 1955. And part of their appeal is that they that they are so nationalistic. They, it, it's funny that their nationalism doesn't extend to kicking out the Americans or, or actually rewriting their constitution by themselves or bringing back the emperor to a more prominent role. But it's, you know, they're, they're constant fighting with China and Korea. They're in a trade war with Korea right now that's sort of been exacerbated by a court in Korea telling Mitsubishi Heavy Industries to pay some slave labor. And as the economy has not improved in, in Japan, that has become more pressing. It's something that everybody can talk about. When the economy was good through the 80s and the 90s, Japan was a little bit more open. That's why they were. That's why they sent so much money to China. Not just investment, but also 
direct aid to China, whereas that couldn't happen now. So China rising on its doorstep and Japan's economy since 1990 not really improving has exacerbated that feeling in Japan of sort of wanting to stand up, even though they can't really. So it's all performative and useless. And going to visit the Yasukuni Shrine doesn't get the country any closer to right. rewriting its constitution, which it would love to. But it's it's just reliable red meat that you can toss to people. To do what uh, with its constitution? Well, they would like to rewrite it because it was written by two Americans, two of just random occupation soldiers who looked at the former Japanese constitution, looked at the American constitution, sort of wrote something in the middle. So it says you can't have a military. They do have a de facto military in the self-defense force. But recently in the pandemic, one excuse for not having lockdowns here was that the constitution didn't allow it. So since 1945, there's really been no change Whenever they wrote the Constitution, 1948, I believe, there's been no significant changes to the Constitution. There's no, even though the Liberal Democratic Party, basically since 19, the 1960s, has said, let's rewrite the Constitution. We need to amend the Constitution. Shinzo Abe was in power for 10 years, talking the whole time about rewriting the Constitution, but he didn't do it. Even though he had immense power, it just, it's just, there's no, it's all kind of performative nationalism that doesn't do anything. I think it's interesting how little of that kind of complicated regional dynamics is known in the West because something that surprised me over the last year was this talk of the D10 in the West, you know, this democratic alliance of 10 nations built against China. So people tried to get South Korea to come to the G7 in in the Cornwall. And then people were surprised that actually Japan didn't want South Korea in the D10. It's like, what? But, but you're both liberal democracies. Why don't you want to tackle China? Well, because there's a a lot of historical baggage there. And it's very silly. Like they, they reported like, like Suga wouldn't talk to Moon and they, they just can't get along. You know, it's so, it's funny because there's a lot of trade between the two countries and they're culturally quite similar. And, you know, this is, it's a funny thing. When you come to Japan, you realize there's so many things that you've seen in China that you've heard in, in Chinese language that are here. They're, they're so similar. They're so similar. That's why, that's why Japanese pop culture um, and Japanese pornography even took off in, in China because the sensibilities, the history, the culture is so similar. I mean, you know, it's the narcissism, the small differences where those, all of any little difference becomes exaggerated and you know brothers have the most vicious fights but it's still kind of unbelievable looking at it through modern politics that these this this is still the state of things in east asia Mm. well dylan levi king thank you so much for joining chinese whispers you're very welcome Thank you for listening to this episode of Chinese Whispers. I hope you enjoyed it. If you're listening to this podcast on the Best of the Spectator channel, remember that Chinese Whispers has its own channel as well. If you just search Chinese Whispers wherever you get your podcast from, you will always get the latest episode first there. If you have any feedback, positive or negative, but preferably constructive, please do email me at podcast at spectator.co.uk. And I'd also love it if you left a review or told your family and friends about the podcast. It's the way to help us grow. So thanks so much for listening and join us again next time. Bye.